1: It's Friday, September 4th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our CEO and co-founder, Raul Powell. But first, I sit down with Jack Farley for an unscripted introduction. Jack, let's jump right in. Sell-off yesterday, lots of volatility today. What do you make of the NFP numbers this morning?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the nonfarm payrolls, they came in at uh, about 1.4 million, just above uh, the expected number. Um, so that was good, not great. Uh, the real news of the day, as you know, is that the unemployment rate uh, fell to 8.4%. And that was well, well below what was expected, which was uh, 9.8%. Um, and that's you know, way, way down from the, I think, 14.7% we were in um, April. So it's a good headline. The U6 rate, the underemployment rate, that decreased from sixteen and a half percent to fourteen point two percent. So I found that interesting. What What did you make of that, Ash?
1: Yeah, alternative measures of labor underutilization. When this becomes a cocktail party topic of discussion, it definitely shows the labor market is under stress.
2: Yeah. So the the jobs market, uh, you know, the market continued um, to plunge today. So it wasn't. Re- Received uh, that well. Obviously, everyone is following um, the tape, following the ticker, and and I am as well. Um, but one thing I was reading a note of Charlie McEllett, and he described it as the tail wagging the dog, and I think that's a great way of putting it because you know one thing that I've been noticing, and other people like Jason Buck and, and Mike Green and Ral have been noticing, is that the VIX has been rising with the S and P, and that the <laughs> Nasdaq Volatility Index, the Vol Q, has been rising uh, with NASDAQ for the past two weeks, and you know as we discussed on Monday, that's rare.
1: It's effectively backwards, right? Like typically, the modality here is uh, as the S and P declines, uh, the VIX rises. They're usually inversely correlated, and so this represents something that shows underlying volatility increasing while the broader equity markets uh, are also rising.
2: Yes, exactly. And then call option, uh, the volume for call options was at an all-time high. The put to call ratio was nearing its all-time lows, and then I was reading a very interesting report from Mike Green, um, which is good about how there was actually a lot of illiquidity in the futures market. Um, so I think it, you kind of had a perfect storm um, for what happened um, yesterday and what continued in today. You know, I mean, we have had for so long um, these terrible economic news on Main Street, and the stock market has continued to glide up. Um, so you know, it really is a uh, A correction that I think even many bulls will say was uh, in some ways overdue.
1: Yeah. You're wading into this material waist deep, and I know that you have a lot more that you could talk about. But in the interest of time, just to move on, I understand you have some thoughts about the new Mark Cahotis piece that Rao recorded, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm dying to see because he's fantastic and he's always great on the platform.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Mark Cahotis, he's one of the most respected short sellers out there. He's one of the toughest uh, people in that space. He's he's open-minded and he's actually uh, going long a um, stock uh, called Overstock, um, and he also has some really interesting thoughts on tokenization, um, which he and Ral had a conversation. So I actually just watched it, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite Real Vision interviews of all time. And judging by the comments, I think people people are agreeing it. But Ash, uh, you know, c- you plug my material up. I'll, I'll uh, go back. One thing that I actually have seen as well. Is your interview with uh, James Altucher uh, about yeah. the death in New York City, which comes out on Monday? Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, James is great. I, you know, I've known James for years, and he he jumped uh, on to Religion Daily Briefing. We had him on for a seven-minute segment. It wasn't nearly enough, so uh, I just asked him to uh, stay for the hour, and we did uh, whatever uh, forty-five minutes or so on uh, the an INTV, uh, talking with him about his views about the death of cities, focused mainly on New York, but also the context of what's happening uh, in the broader United States with the the move away from Tier One cities, and in James's view, uh, towards some of the smaller regional hub cities, which is very interesting. And he also talks about commercial real estate. Uh, and uh, you know, James is a former hedge fund manager, so he gets uh, some insights on the market as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing that piece.
2: Yeah, me too. And honestly, uh, your interview with James, it's kind of in line with uh, this content campaign that we're putting together that's going to start coming out at the end of September, uh, which is about what's next and how COVID is sort of a, an accelerant for all of these secular trends. So we're going to, you know, interview people in real estate, interview people in tech, CEOs, as well as, of, of course, you know, the Real Vision uh, fan favorites, uh, Legends of Finance. So uh, I'm, I'm, uh, really excited for that as well. A perfectly framed plug and on exactly the right subject,
1: the one that I, you know, and uh, I think many of our viewers are very interested in hearing about. Jack, thanks
2: for joining us. Of course, Ash, great, great to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you and Rao have to say. Looking forward to it.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com.
3: Rao, welcome back. It's always good to be here. It's Friday. It's been an exhausting week in, on many levels, but it's good to be here. Well, let me throw this quote to you stocks,
1: bonds, tips, high yield gold, oil, VIX, all down. A perfect hedge only exists in a Japanese garden.
3: <laughs> and that's so true. That's Sun Chartist, who yeah. we all know well on Twitter. I saw that quote and I thought, yeah, it's one of those weeks. Um, you know, I think I alluded it to uh, whether it was last week. No, it wasn't last week, but I've, been, I've written in uh, Real Vision Pro and, and Global Macro Investor. And I know Ed had been talking about this, and Roger as well, is yeah. the risk of building and building that we were going to have something sharp um, coming, and, and now here we are. But what's interesting is there was nowhere to hide. And that's a real feature of these markets these days. Um, I talked about it um, at the Festival of Learning with Brent Johnson and um, Mike Green this morning, is basically there is no offset in the portfolio. Yeah. I mean, it's a nightmare day when bond yields go up, equities get smashed, volatility index doesn't work for you. I mean, literally nothing worked. There was no hedge. Crypto has been in free fall, gold went down, everything. And that's a function of a market that is excessively risk taking. So everything correlates together. I don't believe the correlations last forever. So the crypto correlation, with the stock market and the gold correlation, with the stock market and the dollar, I think they're all passing correlations. But there is there are signs of, of excess speculation that have got into the market where things are just not as they should be. something I've been talking every week that I've appeared on this about is watch the banks, and watch um, what the market's doing overall, and they're doing two different things. And yeah. it has been really concerning for me that the banks, and I did some work in Global macro investor over the weekend, is banks are basically following the real-time economic data. So we've talked here before about um, tracktherecovery.org. Look at um, small business revenues. They've been falling sharply, but they basically have the recovery pattern and the same share price pattern. The same pattern as the bank share prices which is the same as emerging market currencies which is the same as highly indebted triple b equities which is the same as a whole bunch of things they're basically the markets in two things there's one that's following the economy and then there's the other (laughs) and the other as we know has been truly extraordinary
1: yeah, you know, getting to U.S. equity markets. Story out in the Financial Times today uh, about the degree to which uh, derivatives have been pushing stock prices higher. This was something that Ed and I talked about for the full half an hour on Wednesday. It's really an extraordinary chain. Uh, let me just read this quote for you: "The overall nominal value of calls traded on individual U.S. stocks has averaged three hundred and thirty-five billion a day over the past two weeks, according to Goldman Sachs. That is more than triple." The rolling average, 2017 to 2019.
3: Yeah. And the story is, is we'd all been observing, as I remember very well in 99, I was at Goldman. And what happened then is volatility index, the precursor of the VIX, was rising. Stock option volatility was what was driving it, uh, not index volatility. And it, it was diverging massively. And we saw the same thing, stock market going up, volatility rising. And that's usually a sign of excessive speculation or something screwy going on. And there have been various people talking about screwy things going on, Mike Green, um, um, Charlie MacElliot yeah, talked about it, that something was amiss and there was a footprint of a big player distorting prices. Yeah. And the FT article revealed that it's SoftBank. Now this is bizarre. It's bizarre that SoftBank has taken, I mean, I don't know how much they've spent in premium, but $350 billion of notional, let's assume they're a couple of hundred billion of those. And let's say they're spending 1% on premium and out of the money options. They've sprayed a billion or so in premium into the markets. And that's left everybody in a scrambling mess in how they hedge their books and the gamma situation that you know, Ed's talked about and other people have talked about on the platform. Yeah. And that's going to make the markets very volatile, more so than normal, because every time it goes down, people are selling stocks. Every time it goes up, they're, they're, they're buying stocks, and that's hedging a short gamma position that the dealers have in those options. I mean, it, it's an enormous position, let alone, what the hell are SoftBank doing? It makes no sense. They've invested money in these names, and then they're buying options on top. I mean, this kind of smacks like market manipulation to me. There's something deeply wrong about this that I don't quite understand. Now, I very much doubt they're buying options and then they convert them into stock. Maybe that's what they're trying to do, the old takeover strategy that you didn't have to declare your stake because you had the option. I have no idea, but this is not normal behavior. Not that SoftBank has ever done anything normal. Their accounting is somewhat complex, and the things that they've done are somewhat irregular. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Christ, they've also done some amazing stuff, like, you know, they, the, you know, the stake that they had in Yahoo Japan and all the various things that, that uh, Son has managed in that thing, in that vehicle, has been incredible. But you know, who the hell knows what's going on there.
1: I enjoy watching you strain your very British graciousness in discussing their, um, their philosophy and, uh, and uh, workings.
3: Well, see, and also, look, you know, I've been around these markets for a long time, and when screwy stuff happens, somebody blows up. I remember it very well from Bering Brothers. I was in the equity derivative desk of James Capel, which was the kind of um, the equity brokerage arm of HSBC. Yeah. Uh, We would see somebody selling volatility in the Nikkei every day. (laughs) Day in, day out, day in, day out. Everyone's like, who the hell is
2: this?
3: (laughs) It's this Japanese lifer, that pension plan, it's this, that. And there was a partner who who became the youngest ever partner at Goldman, took the other side of that trade, which I found out subsequently when I went to Goldman. This seller of volatility, of which nobody knew really who it was, it was going through one or two brokerages, um, ended up being Nick Leeson. Yeah. What he was doing was basically raising cash by selling options to pay his margin on his loss making futures contract. And then I think and then the earthquake came and, and his position blew up, and that was the end of that. Yeah. And, and one of the oldest banks in the world went under that day. I was yeah. involved in the unwind of that whole thing. But you see these things from time to time; these huge dislocations, and they usually always end in tears. Yeah. Whose tears this is going to be? Whether it's the market overall, whether it's the the, the short term speculative community, or whether it's SoftBank themselves or one of the bank dealing desks—I don't know—but somebody's going to take some pain here.
1: Yeah, Leeson, of course, was uting those prop positions. In this case, uh, it appears to be a strategy.
3: Yeah, but I don't yet know what that strategy is. They've not revealed it. And what's interesting is that in the FT article, they say, well, it's ongoing. So regardless of the dip, let's see whether they buy into the dip. Now, obviously, you don't get margin calls on being long options. So the premium's the premium, they lose their premium, and, and that's then end of that. It depends how badly the, uh, the street is caught short gamma and trying to scramble for hedges and stuff like that. You know, yeah. don't know. And again, it's the knock-on effect to the average guy. So the stock market, you know, everyone's got to remember, is really basically a function of our savings and investments and our pensions. And when somebody, this, a whale, comes into the market and manipulates prices and creates excess volatility, it hurts the average guy. The average guy thought they were getting rich because they were getting it right. But actually, this massive option buying was forcing the underlying share prices to rise of these tech stocks. And it's going to force them to fall as well if we're not careful. Yeah. And it's unfair on people because, you know, when we launched Real Vision, one of this thing was democratizing this kind of information. And we've done a pretty good job with it this week to bring it to people's attention and last week too. Because if you don't know what's going on, you're going to get hurt. And yeah. it's not fair that some, you know, fund based out of Japan can create this kind of impact on what you think is you think you're doing well in, in you know some speculation that you're having a go at trading the stock market it's not right yeah well
1: in keeping with the spirit of democratisation can you explain this phenomenon that we've seen where the delta uh, and gamma of these uh, of these uh, options gets off side relative to the underlying positions that dealers have how that works and why it's so significant
3: yes yeah, so when you so when softbank Let's assume it is SoftBank and the FT article's correct. When SoftBank come and buy call options from you, as a dealer, you're now selling a call option, which makes you short because you're taking the opposite. One view's long, you're selling it to them, now you're short. So what you do is you hedge the delta, which basically is the probability that the market implies that that's going to end in the money or not. I, will that position be profitable or not? So... You do an offsetting trade, which in this case is buying. So when SoftBank come and buy these calls, I'm the dealer, I've sold you those calls. And then what I'm doing is then buying the stocks to hedge myself. Right. Also, I'm going to have another problem here, which is the vega, which is the volatility. Because I don't know normally, because I'm a dealer at one bank, I didn't know that he's given orders to 10 different banks. So I think I'm okay. So I so I think look, I'll sell that volatility it's a little bit expensive because he's asked for a big size position and then before I know it he's done it for 10 other people and volatility's up here. So I'm hedging my volatil- trying to hedge my volatility because I'm now losing and I can't allow it to go further because I've got risk limits at the firm I'm, I'm at but I'm also buying stock so you know, a way of buying volatility and buying stock is buying more options. Either way, you're creating a big problem that right. the whole dealer community is one way round. So then when the market goes down, because you're only hedging the probability of it being in the money, you end up selling on the way down until there's no delta left, i.e. the probability is close to zero. Right. So you sell on the way down as well. So you're exacerbating. You're buying on the way up, selling on the way down. Considering this is three times the size of options that have ever traded before, the excess buying when it goes up and selling when it goes down are enormous, which is why the market accelerated to the upside in August and accelerated to the downside in the last two days. Also, it also explains why the market bounced on the close. I know this very well because the option traders that I used to sit next to throughout my whole career, at the end of the day, they'd square up their books. So at the end of the day, they would then buy back their short delta to hedge themselves flat again. So at the end of the day, in a fast-falling market, they tend to um, square up where they are. So they often speculate a little bit on their delta during the day. So, so you tend to find slight reversals at the market close. Um, so that's, I think, what's going on. But the other thing that has knock-on effects is everything in financial markets. Why did everything else get affected by this one trade? Well, that's interesting, and it's because of something called VAR, Value at Risk. Value at Risk is, I think, a ridiculous, a ridiculous measure of how much risk you're taking. It basically looks at historical correlations and volatilities, and says, "Okay, well, your portfolio should only move around by about this much in a one or two or three standard deviation event." But what it also means is, volatility rises. You can take less risk. So you have to take less risk when volatility rises. So it rises sharply in a day like today, the VIX hit 40. And guess what? Everybody has to sell everything else because yeah. their risk managers tapping them on the shoulder, going, You need to get rid of some of that risk. Right. So that's why it spreads. So risk is infectious. And volatility is infectious, as I've said before. Volatility spreads from one, mar- from one market to the other. And so now that the oil market was down 4.5% today and another few percent yesterday, that's spilling out of the stock market.
1: Yeah, you're forced to liquidate assets that are not declining in value to meet the margin calls on the ones that are.
3: Yeah, it's either margin calls or just risk limits. Yeah, Because your portfolio is moving around too much now. Yeah. So your risk managers are going, no, 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 you need to sell your positions down and let your portfolio move around at the levels that you expected it to.
1: Yeah. And uh, the gamma is the change in delta relative to the change in price of the underlying asset.
3: That's right. And that's the thing that hurts you, because um, something that with a high gamma moves very quickly from you only needing to hedge it with a $1 million to suddenly you need to have $10 million of hedge. And so that incremental buying and selling can get really quite explosive particularly in a position this big.
1: Yeah. You know, Charlie McElligot uh, of Nomura Securities was extensively cited in that FT article recently on with Ed Harrison, called this the, quote, classic tail wags the dog feedback loop, which is exactly what you're talking about.
3: Yes. So that the stocks went up because they were buying calls and the dealers were forced to hedge. The stocks go down because the dealers were suddenly forced, for whatever reason the market rolled over, the dealers were suddenly caught long too much stock versus the delta which was now falling so then they have to sell it's like okay and it's just been exacerbated because of the ridiculous size of this trade yeah um we had it i remember in 2008 as well very smartly the norwegian state uh, sovereign wealth fund hedged its equity portfolio and had been doing it for a couple of quarters uh, buying put spreads, and it was gigantic size, probably the biggest option position the market had ever seen. Mm. Um, but what happened is it was all well and good because it was put spreads. It had very little delta and gamma because you've sold one option against another. So it doesn't move around as much. But when the market started falling in 2008, every dealer has now got a huge amount. And they were forced sellers into that, which was one of the reasons it accelerated at various points.
1: Yeah. So, Raul, as we understand what's happened in the past, what are you going to be looking for next week uh, on Tuesday when markets in the US reopen?
3: For me, it's a function of I want to see whether there's any informational value in what's going on or it's just a technical situation. So, as I've said, the economy's doing one thing, the market's doing another. Is there some closing of gaps that goes on? So, I look for A broader top pattern. I call it the GMI crash pattern, where the market falls sharply for a number of days, usually a week or so. It rallies for a bit, fails, and then takes out that recent low, and usually that accelerates. That was the signal that I took in March that uh, very luckily made a tremendous amount of money. That pattern repeats over and over again. It's a behavioral pattern caused by market participants and how they think about risk. So if something like that forms, then we might say, "Okay, this could be a bigger top. And therefore, the economy is going to exert itself. We know, for example, that the reflexive loop in the equity market outside of the buying of calls was another loop, which was based around the Fed are doing QE, the stimulus, and the speculation. Those three things, and there's a V-shaped recovery. Those were the four horsemen of what drove that market higher. There is no QE going on of any note. There is no stimulus going on of any note. The speculative activity seems that a lot of it was actually one player. It was a significant short Robin Hood and everybody else had that. But the speculative activity, as people lose jobs and this economy goes on longer, is more likely to fall. um, And whatever the fourth one was within that is... The V-shaped recovery, which the real-time data is suggesting, is not true. The economy has come down, gone up, and it's like a square root currently. So it's like an inverse square root. It's not going anywhere, and it could be a W. It could be whatever it is. It's not it's not a V. The market did a V. Some of the market did a V. So when you've got a reflexive loop, and most of the and the other part of it's passive. So there'll be five reasons. Passive flows from four hundred one ks that Mike Green talks about. I think they're going to slow down as well as the economy slows down as people become more cautious. Um, so I think at least three of the the five key elements that cause the reflective melt up are now missing. So in which case you get what somebody else I can't remember who it was called it the wily e. coyote moment. <laughs> I think that was
1: Roger on uh, on RVDV. He was talking about your legs are running and then you look down That's and you right. see there's no cliff.
3: And so that's that's when I was reading the Soros book, rereading for many times, Soros on Soros. And he talks about this exact tipping point of a reflexive cycle, where suddenly you analyze a previous reflexive cycle, and you realize that the tenements of what caused it are no longer in place, and therefore the probability of a large-scale reversal become higher.
1: Yeah, it's really funny. I was actually thinking the same thing, and I was skimming the, the great, uh, while you were saying that, I was actually skimming the, uh, what was it, 2009 article in, in the FT where Soros writes about the roots of reflexivity in Karl Popper and the way that the relationship between the way markets trade and the way traders think.
3: That's right. And so I think it's very vulnerable right now. I think this is possibly a broader topping formation. But as I've always said, trying to pick tops in markets like this is a vanity trade. Yeah. You don't need to do it. If my GMI crash pattern comes out, the probability has become much higher, 65%, 60, 70% odds of a larger down move. At this right. point, we have no informational value apart from a big mess in derivative markets has spilled around <laughs> for a few days. So I know there's a lot of bears you know, punching the air with joy saying, look, 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 we know nothing yet. But let's see. The risks are certainly there from my perspective. Um, I also think there is a probability that the dollar gets stronger again. Mm. Everybody got maximum all-time record-long the euro at the top of the range. Suddenly, the ECB said, we don't really like this strong euro. And guess what? Inflation is negative here, and we want to probably start, you know, we might have to stimulate more. So suddenly, one of the core tenants under the euro rally... Has now disappeared. So I'm like, huh, okay, these are interesting things where we could see reversals and we could see volatility rise. I also thought most of this week, except for today with the unemployment numbers, the bond market had been pretty interesting in how it saw yields falling. Now, God forbid if yields rise for a while, I mean, if yields go up for three weeks, four weeks, I mean, this market is not going to recover. But um, because of the knock-on effects that that has on portfolios. So it's a precarious state of affairs right now, and I don't know which way it's going to go. I really don't, but we'll have to see.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you this, Raoul. Uh What are you going to be watching to understand the way that this is going to unfold? In, in other words, over the next week, two weeks, three weeks, what are you going to be laser-focused on to understand what is playing out?
3: Well, I think there's a, a few things. I keep it on other things that most people aren't looking at in the same set. So I'm looking at that, that real-time economic data, tracktherecovery.org is the easiest one for most people to look at. I also look at the oil price, which has perfectly tracked that same small business revenues data. And my core hypothesis has been we're going to have a big revenue problem, and therefore a solvency problem. The oil price is falling, and I think people aren't noticing that because everyone's in this risk off thing let's see but it does correlate to the underlying economy so there we've got the banks the oil price the emerging market currencies we saw the turkish lira struggling and i don't know if it, it yeah it broke above you know 740 which is a key level that i've talked about on RVDB before those are things at the margin that are concerning yeah uh, i think i'm also looking for crypto and maybe gold not sure yet to start decoupling from this risk off. We're getting a big puke now. And you know, just remember everybody who trades crypto is A, you should expect this. B the last crypto bull run after the halving in two thousand and sixteen, we saw four moves of twenty five percent corrections, we've just done a twenty percent one now, and we saw one of forty percent. So this is not unusual. Um, And you have to be prepared for that. But I think most crypto people understand volatility by now. Yes, they do. (laughs) Ethereum was more speculative. It rode more on the upside. It's going to go more on the downside. Again, that's pretty normal. Gold and silver, always interesting because silver really is a reflationary asset. And the market's still not sure where we are in that cycle. So I'm much more cautious on that. So I'm expecting crypto and gold to eventually decouple from this if this becomes a more drawn out, protracted topping pattern. Um, but they may continue down further first. So I think I'm watching those. As I said, I'm watching the banks. But in these mean reversion trades, what trade has everybody got on? Everybody's short the banks and everybody's long tech. So in a mean reversion trade, most people are going to start covering their banks and selling out of their tech because they're being forced to. So you're going to get some false signals here too. Right. It's, it's, it, these kind of situations are very tricky to trade. So my advice is don't trade them. Wait if we get that kind of topping pattern that I'm looking for great if not sure feel free to buy some calls to the upside if you're that way inclined buy some calls but you know so I rent the rally don't own it buy some calls because right. you can only lose your premium if that's if that's what you're looking for so just just be careful around periods like this uh, and structure trades accordingly um, depending what you're thinking me I I find that these kind of moves, they can be false, they usually carry on further and it's either something much larger or it's you know the 10, 10%, 12% sharp fall caused by a derivative market and then it goes back again. So we, don't, we just don't know and yeah. let's not draw too many conclusions yet. We just have to see the structure of the developments. You're a
0: podcast listener and this is a podcast ad.
1: You know, Ralph to exactly that point, now that we've covered the indicators, the signals that you're going to be looking at, I know that you often think in terms of scenarios going forward, what are your categories of scenarios look like for the way this might unfold?
3: Look, my hypothesis that I talk about all the time is I think I called it the unfolding and I said there was three likely phases to this. And again, I'm not a prophet. I play one well on the internet, but I'm not, <laughs> but I'm not a prophet. Um, I don't know but I'm using my experience and my analysis of the situation to try and grapple with a probabilistic framework that I can use. Right. The first part was the liquidation phase, which we got. That was the COVID phase. Then there was the hope phase. And then after that, my hypothesis was economic growth would not go back to normal for an extended period of time. That's playing out well. And I said, and that will increase the probabilities of bankruptcies. Yeah. Now, whether it's individuals who don't get any economic stimulus, whether it's small businesses that are closing at record rates still, or whether it's larger businesses that will struggle to make payments. Um, Or whether it's renters not paying to owners of buildings who are then not paying to the banks. But the banks kind of sniff this out. They trade like the economy, and the economy trades like it's going to remain negative for a period of time. What makes me Concerned is insolvency situations tend to feed on themselves because they're cumulative. Liquidity events are rapid, solvency events are cumulative because if you don't pay me, then I can't pay you know, my dry cleaning guy and then he can't pay his, the guy he pays his rent to and the guy he pays his rent to can't pay the bank and then the bank won't lend money to that guy, right? That's a yeah. cumulative. Um, and that's a problem with solvencies, they grow. They're like snowballs that form avalanches, but slowly over time. And all of the bankruptcy data is showing this. All of the credit issuance by corporates who can access the market have issued record amounts of debt to get as much cash as they can. When you look at the um, senior, lending, senior loan officers' surveys, they're getting close to all-time record tightness. I, I don't want to lend to you. This is part of the, the discussion that's going on about is QE inflationary, deflationary. Well, right now banks don't want to lend, yeah. and you can't force them to do it, however much money you put in their reserves. So that's an issue. And if I, if you don't lend, if you're the bank and you don't lend me money, and I'm struggling because I've got reduced cash flow because I run a restaurant on a fifty percent um, turnover, well, eventually I'm going to stop paying the rent, and I'm going to stop paying for the kitchen equipment I've leased, and I'm going to stop paying my staff and you're not going to lend it to me because I'm a shitty creditor. Yeah. So this is, this is how credit events work, particularly solvency events. So I think it can snowball if this continues. So it would not surprise me if this goes on longer and I don't see what's going to stop it. So my core hypothesis is it will, it will turn into a W-shaped recession. Sure, it's not going to go down you know, 15% in a quarter again. It'll go down, you know, it'll get back down to 7%, negative 7%, something bloody ugly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. So, and it's the year on year rate of change that I'm looking at here, not the Q on Q. And that's important. So that's my core hypothesis. But I'm watching that real time data to say, well, if it does continue up again, then that hypothesis is likely to be wrong because the banks are correlated to it bit of cash revenues, so we're talking about small business revenues anyway, using that as the core data. Well, if that's increasing, then we're okay, And the probabilities of this going bad are wrong, in which case you can probably start buying banks and buying some of these cheap sectors, the oil companies, stuff like that. I think that's too early. The other thing I note is Europe, and I've mentioned this, ongoing is like when Europe opened up and sent everybody on holiday to Spain and said, "This, this is bad. And guess what? Spain is exploding in virus again. Sure, the death rates are lower. It's a younger population and all blah, blah, blah. But the reaction function of European governments is going to be restriction. It won't be full country lockdowns, but I hear already through the grapevine that Spain is going to go through phased lockdowns of shutting out foreigners and you know, closing down some towns. And Spain's economic growth is in trouble already. They've just forced a bank merger uh, today between two of the banks. And as you know, I've been talking about the Spanish banks for years now, yeah. and so they rallied, I don't know, they're up, one was up 30%, one was up 15%, but it's noise on the chart, you don't even notice it because they've been falling so much. So that whole situation in Spain is gonna get worse. They're calling, they're already suggesting that 25% of all businesses are bankrupt. Um, we don't know. It's Italy's going to have the similar problems. The UK looks like it's getting a second round, and this is going to spread, so then Europe comes out of the demand equation for the world. That doesn't help oil, right? It doesn't help any other industrial commodities. It doesn't help a bunch of things, and it doesn't help the European banks and their ability to allocate capital because they're playing defensive now. It's like, oh, shit, are these guys going bust? Because most lending in Europe is bank lending and not bond market lending, credit yeah. market lending. So... There's a number of scenarios all at play here that are not good, um, but use that real-time data that will keep you pretty much right. It's not real-time enough. It's like it's like uh, it comes out weekly, and I think it's kind of lagged by two weeks to where we really are. But basically, the banks, they're actually a real-time version of that, but they might get screwed up by this unwind of the short banks, long-tech trades. We'll see.
1: Raoul, well, it's a complicated world we now find ourselves inhabiting.
3: It really is. and. You know this is the very reason we did the festival of learning and why we're going to embed the festival of learning content in the plus tier and add more education content in plus tier and pro tier and we'll do it for the essential tier as well for some some levels of learning because you need to know what's going on in a world like this, which is what real vision does, but you also need to know how to run money, how to size risk, how to think about portfolio construction, how to think about time horizon how to think about putting stop losses in, how to read charts, all of these things that people need tools, we need to give it to them as fast as possible. And the Festival of Learning was an extraordinary, you know five or 6,000 people joining us. Like, I don't know how many people are in the Slack channels, 2,000 people talking to each other. People are desperate for education and help, and we're there to do it. It's part of our mission and it's our job to do it. And I was really proud of what we did. And if anybody didn't see it, it's all on demand. So I know it was live, a lot of it was live, it's all on demand. It's basically the legends of finance teaching you how they invest and the lessons from their mistakes and talking you through the basics of some of the things as well. So yeah. if you haven't done it, look out, you see the ads all over Twitter, LinkedIn and everything else and go click. And, and I would urge anybody who's not participated to participate. There is so much incredible stuff there.
1: Yeah, great stuff. I had the pleasure of hosting a couple of those panels. Really terrific content. I did one with Pippa Malgram which was great, uh, and then a trading panel with uh, Jared Dillian, uh, Tom Thornton, and Tony Greer. Really great information there as well. And interestingly enough, if you see that trading panel, it was being conducted at the time the market was collapsing. So you get to see three traders in real time, thinking through, talking through, turning their head to look at a chart, coming back. Sorry, I, I just sold something. It's really fascinating and compelling if you're interested.
3: Yeah, and we had, you know, I had great conversations. But a fantastic one panel I was on was myself, Kyle Bass, and Hugh Hendry with Mark Yusko as the moderator talking about what our biggest screw-ups were and what we learned from them. That's great. Don't get that information except on Real Vision. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. And so, you know, there was priceless moments throughout all of them. The most priceless of all was Hugh Hendry turning up for his How I Invest session with blood all over his face because he'd been doing a photo shoot near a um, um, surfing break the wave came, knocked him flat, smashed his face on the rocks. Just before his shoot, he had to run back. He was bleeding all over the place. But still, <laughs> typical <laughs> Hugh Hendry, he went straight into it, and he's now a pro.
1: Now, that's a professional.
3: The other thing that everybody should be aware of, it's a big announcement. You will see it on Monday, and there should be some emails as well. But I think everybody by now, we see it in the comment section. You see it with the engagement that the Real Vision Daily Briefing brings you see it in these events, is everyone wants more conversation. Everyone wants to be part of the conversation. So Real Vision is going to move from a new phase from being just a series of shows to being the place where you come for all debate and conversation. And that's something called the exchange. It's our new community that all members have access to. There's different tiers. There's different exchanges, i.e. different channels for you to join on different topics, the topics that matter to you. And what's incredible is you can post your own content. If you want to create your own weekly YouTube show and post it on there, knock your socks off. If you want to put research on there, trade ideas, ask the community questions. How the hell does a euro-dollar call spread, what does that mean? Ask the community. We've got the smartest people in the world, all as Real Vision members. So people can do that. People can get involved, meet each other, get to know each other, debate each other, and what's also great is I'm sick of the politics on Twitter now. I'm sick of the social commentary. It becomes a burden. Yeah. But this is going to be a place for markets, the yeah. place where we say, "Look, you can leave all that shit at home. Let's come talk markets and let's try and make some money." Um, and that's the Real Vision community. And people are going to drop in because already, you know, speaking to a bunch of the famous Real Vision rock stars are uh, you know, regular guests. They all want to join. They're all going to be part of it. Tony Greer and Dave Floyd and Tommy Thornton and you name it, they'll all be in this. And this will be the place for long-form discussion because there's nowhere for that, right? We're on Twitter trying to do these stupid tweet threads. Well, now we can actually get involved in a proper, meaningful analysis, debate, conversation, argument, or whatever we want to do. And I can't wait. So that launches Monday. You'll see it on the nav button at the top. The navigation button will just say the exchange. Click on that. Once you're registered... You're in, knock your socks off, start creating content, add value to the community. My tip for community is, and I've you know learned this from Twitter, building a big audience there and on LinkedIn, is add value. Post things, post ideas, comment, help out, and then people will want to follow you and you can build your own community. What, what engages less is just commenting on other people's posts post your own stuff, help the community, show them what you see, and encourage them to discuss it and debate it. And then magic happens. We're all going to lo- learn from each other. You know the, the tens of thousands of Real Vision subscribers, that's magnification of learning right there in real time. We can all learn from each other. That's priceless. So I'm yeah. super excited about that, as you can tell. Yeah,
1: it's very well said. And also, I would just highlight this is this is a rich community where video is going to be embedded uh, natively into the core of the functionality. So jump on, you can kind of make your own content. We may have competition route on RVDB very soon.
3: I, I want that. And you know, also, you know, podcasters, you guys don't have communities very easily. Come and host your, your community on our podcast. We're more than happy to have you. And then you can engage your guys. We have private communities. We have public communities. We have paid communities. We have free communities. We don't know where this is going. Yeah. We want to leave it in the hands of everybody else to do. We're just going to give them some pointers and then knock your socks off. The only one rule, as ever, is no ad hominem attacks and don't be a dick. Just be nice. Just be nice to people. You can argue all you want. You can argue all day and all night. But yeah. just, just, be, just be good. Just be good people. And then you're going to love it.
1: Yeah. I dare say the reason that we don't know exactly where this is going is because we're leading the charge. This has never really been done before.
3: No, no. No, it really hasn't. This is, this is really exciting. This could be huge.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving in and getting involved. You're ahead of me on the leaderboard.
3: I'm well ahead. You've got <laughs> work to do, my son.
1: I was first. I'm the ExxonMobil of this uh, of the leaderboard. I got pushed out. I got pushed down by everybody else jumping ahead of me.
3: Are you saying I'm a fang stock? Is that what I am? I'm going to flame out.
1: You're a high-flying stock, Ralph.
3: Yeah. So part of this, just so everybody's aware, is there is a point system for how well you engage in the community. Yeah. And obviously, I'm well ahead of everybody else. <laughs> and there's, there's been no competition at all amongst the staff about what they should be doing. But we will have, you know, we'll probably have a firing line for somebody who does the least well over a three-month period. Yeah. So, you know, Jack seems to be all right right now. I don't know who's struggling in the leaderboard, but, you know, they should be worried. There's going to be all their, all their executive perks taken away.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the gauntlet's been thrown down. But as you say, it's totally gamified. It's a really cool experience. You can get in there. You can compete for points and it likes, and it's really interesting stuff.
3: Yeah, it's super interesting. Anyway, look, everybody, just have a fantastic weekend. I know it's been a hell of a week. We've had to digest the festival of learning, learn all of this stuff, and get a learning from the markets all at the same time. But, you know, hey, that's what we're in this for. So have a great weekend and get some rest. Have a good weekend, everyone. Uh